And now it's time for today's obituaries. There's mm-hmm. one obituary today from Ankeny, Iowa. Loanne Marlene Dirks Dodge, um, age 89, passed away Monday, October 16, 2023. Funeral services are Saturday, October 21st, at 10 a.m. at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, 517 Southwest Des Moines Street in Ankeny. Visitation from 9 to 10 o'clock before the service. Burial at Pleasant View Cemetery in Hartley, um, Iowa, at uh, 3.30 p.m. Born October 12, 1934, to Leroy H. and Fern Webert Dirks. Graduated in 1952 from Merrill, Merrill, Iowa, with continued education at Sioux City, Iowa Business School. Graduating in 1954. She worked at insurance company in Sioux City, Iowa, and met the love of her life, Gordon L. Dodge. They married November 7, 1955, and had two children, Gary and Lisa Ann. Loanne worked for Legislative Service Bureau of Iowa and eventually became code editor for the state of Iowa. She retired in 1999 after many wonderful years. Loanne is survived by her two children, uh, Gary L. Dodge and wife Jane Papa Dodge of Des Moines, Iowa, and Lisa Ann Dodge Minns and her husband Richard of Slater, Iowa. Also, uh, five grandchildren and three great grandchildren. She also is preceded in death by her husband Gordon L. Dodge, her parents uh, Leroy and Fern Webert Dirks, and her brother Odell Dirks. Memorials in Loanne's name may be directed to Holy Trinity Lutheran Church at 517 Southwest uh, Des Moines Street in Ankeny, 50023, or the Des Moines Symphony, um, 1011 Locust Street, Suite 200 in Des Moines, at 50309. Send any correspondence to Box 34 in Slater, Iowa, that's 50244. And many thanks to Mill Pond Nursing Center, Care Center in Ankeny for their loving, tender care of Loanne. For a complete obituary, please refer to the Ankeny Funeral Home and Crematory. Thank you, Judith. Okay, from page six of the main section, the House rejects plan for interim speaker. New vote is likely despite Jordan's waning support. This is from Ken Tran, Savannah Kuchar, Candy Woodall, Marina Potofsky, and Sudisa Kochi of Washington. On the 16th day, without a speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, quiplash ensued as Republican lawmakers tried to make progress toward electing a new permanent leader. Lawmakers looked like they were coming close to a deal after Representative Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, backed a plan empowering Representative Patrick McHenry, Republican from North Carolina, as Speaker until January to get the House moving again. McHenry has already been serving as an interim Speaker with limited powers, and Jordan has lost two Speaker elections on the House floor. But after an hours-long closed-door meeting, House Republicans as a whole appeared to reject the plan, putting the lower chamber and the nation back at square one. Instead, Representative Matt Gates, Republican from Florida, told reporters he expected there to be a third speaker election Thursday, with Jordan as the GOP nominee again. Gates triggered the process that resulted in the ouster of Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Representative Andy Barr, Republican from Kentucky, 
told reporters Jordan would consult with his family and McCarthy before a third vote. Without a permanent leader, the House cannot act on substantive matters, such as an aid package for Israel and any solutions for the looming government shutdown next month. In closed discussions Thursday, one per party, members quickly surfaced problems with the McHenry proposal. Representative Scott Perry, Republican from Pennsylvania, chair of the House Freedom Caucus, told reporters he would oppose empowering McHenry with temporary powers. The resolution to make him effectively an interim speaker sets a bad precedent, Perry said. Representative Ryan Zinke, Republican from um, Montana, told reporters he expected half the House Republican conference to oppose the measure, granting McHenry temporary powers. Zinke himself did not say whether he would support the resolution, noting that he thought the House should elect a speaker and reiterating his support for Jordan. Representative Mark Molinero, Republican from New York, believed McHenry already had the authority to move forward. The acting speaker, however, has been resistant to the idea, Molinero said, instead pushing for Congress to pass a resolution instead to resolve the issue. On the Democratic side, lawmakers made it clear there would be ramifications. Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland, said House Republicans shouldn't expect Democrats to vote to empower McHenry without making concessions. He said, obviously, if our votes are needed, we're going to be substantively involved in the definition of what the agenda is, said Raskin. Still, it remains a question whether Jordan can reach the votes he needs to become Speaker. Crucially, his support from House Republicans slid from the first vote to the second, putting his bid for the job on life support. 22 GOP lawmakers voted against Jordan Wednesday, an increase from the 20 who opposed him on Tuesday. He had 199 votes Wednesday, short of the 217 that he needed. The push to grant McHenry additional powers came after Republican holdouts vowed not to support Jordan. Representative Steve Womack uh, of Arkansas, one of the holdouts, told reporters Wednesday evening he did not see a way forward for Jordan. There did not seem to be a path for anyone else, either. Each round, several lawmakers voted for McCarthy, the ousted speaker, and for House Majority Leader Steve Scalise of Louisiana, who had already dropped out of the race. One lawmaker in the second round even cast a protest vote for John Boehner, who resigned as speaker in 2015 under pressure from Jordan and the House Freedom Caucus. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, New York, Democrat, received 212 votes in both rounds, the full backing of House Democrats and more than Jordan. However, the New York Democrats still needed five more votes, and despite infighting among Republicans, it was very doubtful whether any lawmaker on the right would cast a vote across the aisle, let alone five. McHenry was chosen to be acting House Speaker from a succession list that McCarthy provided to a House clerk in January in case his seat became vacant. The North Carolina Republican is serving his 10th term. He is a McCarthy ally and chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, a role that helped him negotiate the debt limit deal earlier this year. As an interim figure, McHenry is not in line for the presidency in case of an emergency. Instead, Senator Pat Murray from Washington, Democrat, 
president pro tempore of the Senate, of the Senate comes after Vice President Kamala Harris. Initial polling on McCarthy's removal found public opinion fairly balanced. A Yahoo News slash YouGov poll released October 16th found 31% of registered voters approved of McCarthy being ousted, while 27% disapproved of the House's decision. Likewise, a CNN SSRS poll conducted from October 4th to October 9th found that 50% approved the decision and 49% disapproved. 34% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents said his removal was bad for the GOP, while 30% thought it was good. And a poll released from the Associated Press NORC on October 11th found that 25% of voters strongly or somewhat approved of McCarthy's removal, while 25% strongly or somewhat disapproved. The polls were conducted before the two failed votes for a new speaker. Ted Davis, a 58-year-old retiree in Portland, Oregon, is one of the voters who disapproves of the House booting its speaker and failing to elect a replacement. He compared that situation to a giant freaking circus. They can't even figure out what they want to do as near as I can tell, said Davis, who is an independent. <laughs> Judith. From the Nation and World Extra, forecasters predict warm and wet United States winter, but less snow likely because of El Nino and climate change. This story released by the Associated Press by Seth Borenstein. The upcoming United States winter looks likely to be a bit low on snow and extreme cold outbreaks, with federal forecasters predicting the north to get warmer than normal and the south wetter and stormier. A strong El Nino heavily moderates and changes the storm tracks of what America is likely to face from December to February. With an added warming boost from climate change and record hot oceans, officials at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said Thursday in releasing their winter outlook. The forecast warmth will likely turn some storms that would have dumped snow into rain in the nation's northern tier, but there is also some hope for snow lovers, with one or two possible whopping northeasters for the east coast, said John Gottschalk, operations branch chief of NOAA's Climate Prediction Center. Parts of the east coast, particularly the mid-Atlantic, may get more snow than normal because of that, he said. Most of the country is predicted to be warmer than normal with that warmth stretching north from Tennessee, Missouri, Nebraska, and Nevada, along with nearly all of California. The rest of the nation is forecast to be near normal or have equal chances for warm, cold, or normal. NOAA does not predict any part of the U.S. to be cooler than normal this winter. Gottschalk said the greatest odds for warmer-than-average conditions are in Alaska, the Pacific Northwest, and northern New England, Gottschalk said. A similarly large southern swath of the country is predicted to be wetter. The forecast of added moisture stretches from Massachusetts down the east coast along most of the south below Tennessee and extending west through Texas, Kansas, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, and most of California, but excluding good chunks of New Mexico and Arizona. The Great Lakes region and the furthest northern parts of the nation, stretching from Lake Erie to eastern Washington, are forecast to be drier than normal. 
All of this is because of El Nino, which is a natural, periodic warming of parts of the Pacific that changes weather patterns worldwide and generally heats up global temperatures, Gottschalk and other NOAA scientists said. El Nino has its strongest effects, especially in the United States during the winter. That's when it sends the jet stream, which moves storm fronts, on an unusual path that is dominated by warmer and wetter Pacific air plunging south. That means more rain in the south and extra storminess in the late winter, Gottschalk said. El Nino often means unusual severe weather across the state of Florida because of a strong subtropical jet stream. Those changes in the jet stream often can bring a storm along the east coast with moisture from the Caribbean and Gulf of Mexico to get very juiced up and fall as heavy snow in big eastern cities, Gottschalk said. That depends on timing of temperatures and other conditions, so it is not likely to happen more than a couple times. But if the timing is right, these storms can really explode off the east coast, he said. He pointed to Washington's paralyzing 2010 Snowmageddon storm that dumped more than two feet on the capital region during an El Nino. Normally, the South gets not just wetter, but cooler during an El Nino, but Gottschalk said the warmer ocean temperatures and record hot summer temperatures led forecasters to ditch a cooler outlook. NOAA scientists said climate change is an added factor to their forecast, especially with winter being a season where the world sees some of the most warming above old normals from the burning of coal, oil, and natural gas. Winter in the lower 48 has warmed on average 1.6 degrees Fahrenheit in the past 40 years, according to NOAA data. Meteorologists outside NOAA see the winter playing out somewhat similarly. Judah Cohen, a winter storm expert for atmospheric environmental research, a commercial firm outside of Boston, has become prominent because of his successful forecasts based on fall Siberian snow cover and study of the infamous polar vortex. The Siberian snow cover, El Nino, and other factors indicate an overall mild winter, he told the Associated Press. When Siberia has less fall snow, the polar vortex, a mass of cold air centered at the top of the globe, tends to stay strong and keeps the frigid Arctic air pent up near the pole, Cohen said. When there's more snow, the polar vortex is weaker and the frigid air escapes to the United States. People on the East Coast should be prepared for weather whiplash, with not much snow in general, except for one or two real gangbusters, especially in the mid-Atlantic, Cohen said. The private firm AccuWeather forecasts before um, below average snowfall in Boston, New York City, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, Chicago, and Minneapolis, with near average in Kansas City, Salt Lake City, and Philadelphia, and more than normal in Denver. AccuWeather predicts less warmth than NOAA, with pockets of Southern California, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee cooler than normal. Thank you, Judith. That's refreshing to have some weather articles in the midst of all the politics. I'm going to move to page 7, however, of the main section. Sidney Powell pleads guilty in election case. 
gets probation in efforts to overturn Trump's 2020 Georgia loss. This is from Bart Jansen, Asia Bagchi, and Josh Meyer. A second co-defendant with Donald Trump in the Georgia election conspiracy case, Sidney Powell, pleaded guilty Thursday to a half-dozen misdemeanors dealing with a conspiracy to interfere in the 2020 election. Legal experts said Powell's central role in the conspiracy as an election lawyer who baselessly claimed widespread election fraud in 2020 could have an impact on other defendants charged in the alleged racketeering conspiracy that sought to keep Trump in power. Ms. Powell is at the vortex, the center, the hub of the alleged conspiracy, said Gene Rossi, who handled racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations' cases in his three decades as a former federal prosecutor and Justice Department official. She will be a phenomenal witness for the government because she was at strategic meetings, part of important conversations, and she was a leader in implementing the scheme to discredit the lawful election of Joe Biden. Powell was initially charged with racketeering and six other counts as part of a wide-ranging scheme to overturn the election so Trump could remain in power. She was charged with tampering with election equipment in the Coffee County, Georgia. She pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit theft by taking and five counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with the performance of election duties. Powell agreed to testify in future trials in exchange for serving six years of probation, a $6,000 fine, and paying restitution of $2,700. Powell's agreement fell under Georgia's First Offender Act, which will allow her to honestly say she was never convicted of the charges if she successfully completes her probation and is discharged, according to prosecutor Daisha Young. If Powell violates the terms of her first offender sentence or commits other, another offense while on probation, her first offender status could be revoked and she could be resentenced to the maximum, Young said. Powell is one of 19 co-defendants charged in the case, which alleged a broad racketeering conspiracy. Other portions of the conspiracy included the recruitment of fake presidential electors, to vote for Trump despite President Joe Biden winning Georgia, lying about election results to state officials and in court records, and soliciting public officials to violate their oaths of office. Legal experts said Powell's agreement to testify against others in the case is very significant because she dealt at length with Trump, lawyer Rudy Giuliani, and others who charged in the conspiracy. Powell worked closely with major figures in the case. She participated in a news conference with Giuliani and co-defendant Jenna Ellis at the Republican National Committee, portraying baseless allegations of election in November 2020. Powell met with Trump at the White House, including on December 18, 2020, to discuss having the military seize voting machines, which Trump didn't order. Judith. At Trump trial, scrutiny shifts to son Eric. This story released by the Associated Press by Jennifer Peltz, Dateline, New York. The spotlight at former President Donald Trump's civil fraud trial turned Thursday to his son Eric with testimony and documents 
suggesting the uh, Skyon envisioned a lofty value for a suburban golf course and was actively involved in appraisals he has said he doesn't remember. The trial stems from New York Attorney General Letitia James' claims that Donald Trump, his company, and executives, including Eric Trump, fraudulently inflated asset values on financial statements given to lenders, insurers, and others. The defendants deny the allegations, and the 2024 Republican presidential frontrunner says the values actually were underestimated. About a decade ago, Trump's company sought appraisals of two of their properties in New York's suburban Westchester County, the Trump National Golf Club, and an estate known as Seven Springs, according to documents and testimony Thursday. At the time, the companies were considering what are known as conservation easements on the properties, according to David McArdle, an appraiser with the commercial real estate firm Cushman and Wakefield. A conservation easement is essentially an agreement to forego development in exchange for a tax break. McArdle said he was asked in 2013 to figure out what the golf course would be worth if 71 high-end townhomes were built there, and he got substantial input from Eric Trump, who is an executive vice president of the Trump Organization. Of course, Eric Trump has lofty ideas on value, assuming the townhouses would easily sell for $1,000 per square foot, McArdle wrote in an email to a fellow appraiser at the time. Eric Trump subsequently sent McArdle suggestions of properties to use for comparison, while arguing that none had close to the amount, quality, or kind of amenities of the Trump course in Briarcliff Manor, New York. As McArdle settled on a value around $45 million, he and lawyers for the Trump company strategized in an email about how to present it to their client. McArdle said Thursday that Eric Trump may have had a more lofty value in mind, but a higher number would not have been credible. The email discussion was a lead-up to finally tell Eric he should accept this value from the professionals, McArdle testified. McArdle then got a message from Eric Trump saying that he had spoken to one of the lawyers and telling McArdle to hold off sending the appraisal until further notice. Trump's financial statements went on to list the golf course at values sometimes topping $100 million, according to James' lawsuit. The villas were not built. Donald Trump floated various plans over the years for Seven Springs, a historic mansion and 213-acre property that spans three Westchester County towns. After his development proposals met opposition, he pursued an easement. McArdle was hired in 2014 through a lawyer for Trump's companies to evaluate Seven Springs' value. The appraiser said the exercise assumed the estate could be divided into about two dozen building lots for luxury homes. Once again, McArdle said, Eric Trump touted the property's attributes to him and suggested a supposedly comparable spread, a Connecticut development where lots sold for more... uh, as much as $3 million apiece. He had a very high opinion of his property, said McArdle, who said he eventually advised in a phone call that Seven Springs was worth up to $50 million. Eric Trump was included in and responded to emails arranging for McArdle to present his view. A few months later, Donald Trump's financial statements valued Seven Springs at over $160 million, according to James' lawsuit. When asked about McArdle, In pre-trial testimony this year, 
Eric Trump said he only vaguely recognized the man's name and did not recall much, if anything, about the appraisals of Seven Springs or the golf course. Eric Trump said, I pour concrete. I operate properties. I do not focus on appraisals between a law firm and Cushman. Defense lawyer Lazaro Fields, in questioning McArdle, sought to establish that it is not uncommon for owners to talk up their property's values to appraisers and for their opinions to differ. Absolutely, McArdle said, but ultimately, we are the ones calling the value. Both Eric and Donald Trump have attended some of the trial, but were not there Thursday, when the court also heard about a $160 million refinancing loan on a Trump-owned Wall Street office building in 2015. An internal document prepared by lender Ladder Capital said the deal strengths included Trump's stated net worth of nearly $5.8 billion, over $300 million of it in cash, and other liquid assets, figures that reflected Trump's 2014 financial statement. Ladder Capital executive Jack Weisselberg testified, the net worth statement is one of many things that we look at in the underwriting process. I would not say it was a key factor. It, it was a factor. Liquidity was what we were really paying attention to. Weisselberg is the son of former Trump company finance chief Alan Weisselberg. The state attorney general is seeking $250 million and a ban on Trump and other defendants doing business in New York. In a pretrial ruling, Judge Arthur Ngoran found that Trump and his company engaged in fraud, and the judge ordered that a court-appointed receiver take control of some Trump companies. An appeals court has since at least temporarily blocked enforcement of that aspect of the ruling. If upheld, it could strip the ex-president of control over Trump Tower and other marquee properties. Both Ngoran and James are Democrats. Thank you, Judith. I'm going to jump on the same page over to the In Brief articles. Police said man who crashed into consulate had knife and crossbow. This is Dateline San Francisco. A man who crashed a car at the Chinese consulate earlier this month had a crossbow and arrows and swung a knife at officers before a police sergeant killed him, San Francisco police said Thursday, offering the first official details of the attack. San Francisco police showed body camera footage from the officers who responded to the October 9th attack on the consulate in a residential neighborhood in the city. San Francisco police, acting commander Mark M., speaking at a virtual town hall, said Zhuanyan Yang got out of his car where police found a crossbow and arrows and stood against a wall. Im said Yang then turned toward San Francisco Police Sergeant Troy Carrasco, who was the first to arrive on the scene, and a consulate security guard, and made multiple rapid downward-swinging motions with the knife in their direction. Carrasco can be seen in body camera footage touching Yang's back and asking, does he have a gun, before Yang, who is rubbing his face with his left arm, turns toward Carrasco and the security guard and starts swinging a knife. The footage shows Carrasco then opens fire and shortly after shouts, You should have told me he had a knife. Yang, age 31, was taken to a hospital where he died. A painting stolen by a U.S. soldier during World War II is returned to Germany. This is Dateline Chicago. 
After a stopover in the U.S. that lasted the better part of a century, a Baroque landscape painting that went missing during World War II was returned to Germany on Thursday. The FBI handed over the artwork by 18th-century Austrian artist Johann Franz Nepomuk Lauderer to a German museum representative in a brief ceremony at the German consulate in Chicago, where the pastoral piece showing an Italian countryside was on display. Art Recovery International, a company focused on locating and recovering stolen, stolen and looted art, tracked down the elusive painting after a person in Chicago reached out last year claiming to possess a stolen or looted painting that their uncle brought back to the U.S. after serving in World War II. The painting has been missing since 1945 and was first reported stolen from the Bavarian State Painting Collections in Munich, Germany. It was added to the database of the German Lost Art Foundation in 2012, according to a statement from the Art Recovery Company. I have an announcement that I need to read again. And that is, at the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the airtimes of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. At 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. At 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs daily nonpareil. 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear City View. At 8.30, it's Polk County Senior. 9 p.m., tune in to Brain Trust with readings from Wired and other tech magazines. 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal, and we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11. So for the last minutes, last 90 minutes, your read- minutes? <laughs> just, just a few minutes. It's Friday. Your readers have been Deanna Snyder and Judith Linden. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been... Oh, I already read that, didn't I? <laughs> Welcome back. Hi, it's your, Friday. Your new, readers, your new readers are Ben Stein and Jim Hoffman. We will now continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. And so here is Jim Hoffman with our next article. Thank you. And uh, we're starting off today, uh, opinion page from the USA Today newspaper. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Capitol Hill chaos shrouds candles in both parties. This written by Ingrid Jacques of uh, the USA Today. I realize this may be asking a lot, but wouldn't it be great if so many of our politicians weren't unscrupulous creeps. These days, after scanning the headlines about the folks running the government, I feel like I need a shower. It seems like an almost daily occurrence that a current or former elected official lands in court for one shady misdeed or another. Government corruption almost seems normal. It shouldn't be. Between the alarming attack on listen, uh, Israel this month and the Republicans bungling their House leadership, some of the latest scandals haven't gotten the amount of attention they deserve. Let me refresh you on what's been happening. The charges keep coming for Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat from New Jersey, a career politician to his core, Menendez has spent decades in Congress between his time in the House and now the Senate. His seniority earned him the powerful position of chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which he is now charged with abusing for his personal gain. Menendez had to step down from that role while his case plays out but he doesn't appear to be leaving office soon, at least of his own accord. Last week, Menendez was slapped with additional charges of conspiracy to act as a foreign agent. That is on top of his indictment on bri bribery charges. Stop and think about that. The now former chair of foreign relations a committee that reviews treaties with other nations and votes on all diplomatic nominations is accused of acting as a foreign agent for hire. Comparing Bob Menendez, Donald Trump, and George Sandoz, <clears throat> what he's accused of is extremely serious. Menendez, along with his wife, is charged in part with benefiting the Egyptian government as well as several businessmen in exchange for hundreds of thousands in gold bars and cash. Some of the loot was found at his home, hidden in closets and clothes which doesn't seem suspicious at all. And for good measure, throw in a Menendez, a Mercedes convertible worth more than $60,000, which prosecutors say business executives bought for the senator and his wife in exchange for Menendez interfering in an insurance fraud case. 
It's not the first time Menendez has had a run-in with the law involving bribery charges. In 2017, a federal jury deadlocked on whether to convict the senator, which led to a mistrial. See a pattern here? Menendez, according to historians, may be the first sitting senator in U.S. history to have been indicted in two criminal cases, a distinction no one should strive for. Now, if you're a liberal, I can bet what you're thinking. Well, look at former President Donald Trump, or how about Representative George Santos? Trump has been indicted in four criminal cases, as well as a civil fraud case, all of which are unprecedented for a former president. Then there's Curious George. Last week, a new indictment alleges Santos stole the identities of campaign donors and used donors' credit cards as his piggy bank. That comes four months after he was charged with other financial crimes. It's really no wonder that his campaign coffers are in arrears. There's also the fact that Santos made up his entire resume. He's a first-class sleazebag. Yet, unlike Menendez, Santos is a freshman congressman, one who is unlikely to make it to his sophomore term, assuming voters are paying attention. Menendez has a position of leadership and real power, and Democrats kept promoting him despite earlier warning signs. What Menendez is accused of doing deserves to be scrutinized of its own accord. The question remains, what to do with these bad actors? It's historically rare to expel a member of Congress. It's easy for Democrats to scream and yell that Santos is a disgrace and must go. And Republicans like to do the same to Democrats. For instance, Republicans have called for Representative Germani Bowman, a Democrat from New York, to be expelled from the House after he pulled a fire alarm before a key vote to keep the government open. Bowman said it was a mistake, and his office released a memo that labeled Republicans as Nazis. Regardless, it's an odd mistake for a former school principal to make in a bizarre incident, even if it doesn't rise to the level of expulsion. <clears throat> but I digress. Expelling a House member has only hampered a few times uh, happened a few times in our history. Of the 15 times the Senate has expelled a member, 14 occurred during the Civil War for supporting the Confederacy. Unfortunately, bipartisanship often comes before principle. With thin margins of control in the House and Senate, both sides need as many warm bodies as they can get, regardless of how repugnant. Some New York Republicans have called for the House to expel Santos, although that's not likely to happen. The same goes for the Senate. Quite a few Democrats have called on Menendez to resign, 
but they're not likely to take the matter further. These men deserve their day in court, but I'm less certain <clears throat> they should be running the halls of Congress. The surest way to rid the government of alleged weasels is for voters to make sure they don't get the chance again. Thanks, Jim. Our next opinion from Tom Ginsburg and Tony Banout, entitled, Is Free Speech Being Limited on Campus? Some Feel Excluded. We found room for both hope and pessimism in a recent free expression survey that the University of Chicago helped develop with the Associated Press, NORC, Center for Public Affairs Research. One of the most worrying results was that not everyone is seen as having the same freedom to speak their minds on college campuses. People said conservatives had the least freedom to speak, but they perceived problems of exclusion beyond just one group. Asian people also were seen as having less freedom of expression than other groups, and respondents said campuses did the worst at providing an inclusive environment for conservatives, visiting speakers, Asian people, and transgender people. We see related problems for campus expression as people respond to the tragedies of the Israel-Hamas war. Many students don't feel free to express their views, and some universities risk chilling discussions on their campuses by taking collective positions, sending the message that there is one official stance and that other opinions are not welcome. This is a troubling trend in our polarized times. We face huge challenges as a society, and we can't address them fully if people at colleges and universities, our greatest engines of new thinking and innovation, do not feel free to challenge each other and pursue ideas and breakthroughs wherever they lead. Sadly, just as the need for new knowledge and discovery becomes more acute, universities have been riddled with challenges to free inquiry from all ideological factions. We find ourselves in something of a moral panic from which neither the left nor the right is immune. But we also see signs that the tide is turning and fast. One survey found heartening public support for many aspects of free expression, including bipartisan resistance to state restrictions on what professors at public universities can teach. Among encouraging strands, universities are taking on free expression. Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, this year, rejected a call for mandatory trigger warnings for potentially offensive course content. In Northern California, Stanford Law Dean Jenny Martinez, who wrote an articulate defense of free expression after the disruption of a talk by U.S. Circuit Judge Kyle Duncan, was appointed provost of the university. Many schools, including our own, are launching new free inquiry and expression initiatives, while others have adopted the Chicago Principles on free expression. Such bold moves are critical, but they go only so far. To realize the potential of free inquiry, we need an active shift in campus culture. Freedom of expression on college campuses is not the same as an absence of personal constraint on speech nor is it grounded primarily on the First Amendment. Universities are crucibles of truth-seeking for faculties and students alike. To advance that ideal, campuses must be places 
where students and scholars are challenged by alternative viewpoints. Universities have it in their power to take concrete steps to build stronger cultures of free inquiry and expression, including orient every member of the university community in the values of free inquiry and academic freedom. Our institutions of higher education devote a good deal of attention to orienting students and faculty to diversity, Title IX, and campus life. But few offer an introduction to the traditions of academic freedom. The University of Chicago, Purdue in Indiana, and Princeton in New Jersey are among the campuses that integrate free expression into student orientation. More schools should follow this example. Actively develop the practices and virtues needed to exercise free inquiry and expression effectively among the student body and faculty. Constructive dialogue across difference is a skill, and to be developed, well, it takes courage. Humility, respect for each person's innate dignity, and healthy skepticism. The new forum for free inquiry and expression is the next step in our efforts at the University of Chicago. Proactively seek and encourage intellectual and ideological diversity across all academic disciplines. Breakthrough ideas and discoveries come from the generative friction among conflicting claims. Unfortunately, most leading universities are behind in fostering ideological diversity, but some, such as Southern California's Claremont McKenna College, have always seen viewpoint diversity as fundamental for success. Resolutely defend uninhibited conversation and exchange through the clear administrative articulation of a commitment to free inquiry and expression. This is where the rubber hits the road. In moments when conflicts over expression occur on campuses, courageous administration is needed to defend free inquiry. We must learn from the mistakes of Hamline University in St. Paul, Minnesota, where the school abandoned an art history instructor amid controversy rather than protecting her academic freedom. Despite the challenges to free inquiry, we remain enthusiastic about the breakthroughs of human ingenuity and discovery that our colleges and universities will yet make possible. Combining the remarkable burgeoning activity across the higher education landscape with the creativity and passion of Generation Z makes for a very bright future. Doubling down on free inquiry and expression is the key. Without it, universities will lose all that makes them distinctive. Thanks, Ben. Uh, we turn our attention to sports and uh, high school football here in Iowa. Uh, this being the, the last week of uh, regular season and off to the playoffs. Um, this article written by Alyssa Hertel of the Des Moines Register, Predictions and Games to Watch During Week 9. Eight weeks of the Iowa high school football season have come and gone, and just like that, it's on to week nine. <clears throat> Since it's the last week of the regular season for the larger classes, high school football fans have a pretty good idea about which teams could end up playing in the Unidome. In the smaller uh, classes, 2A, 1A, A, and 8 player, the playoffs get under, underway this week. Each week, we're making educated guesses about the results of some high school games. We're sticking to mostly Central Iowa and Class 5A games. 
but we'll throw in uh, picks that draw statewide interest as well. Through the first seven weeks, we went 55 and 24 in our predictions. Last week, uh, we picked 10 games, only went 5 and 5. That's a 60 and 29 overall record ahead of week 9, and there are 10 more games uh, and predictions this week. So let's look at these. Number five, Waukee Northwest at Ames. Uh, Wolves quarterback Sam Johnson is equally effective in the air and on the ground. His go-to receiver Maverick Inman is the other big part of the offense. The Ames defense has been solid, but Waukee Northwest as a whole may just be too much. So the pick is Northwest, 30-10. to 10. Number 10, Ankeny Centennial at, at, at Urbandale. Both of, the, both of these programs are 4-4, four and four, but Centennial has played the tougher schedule. That should give the Jaguars the advantage, especially as Centennial looks to bounce back from a tough loss last Friday. So they're picking Centennial 24-13. Number 10, Norwalk. Number 7, Glenwood. This could end up being a solid matchup to end the regular season. Statistically, Norwalk looks like the stronger team. But Glenwood has beaten an opponent that beat the Warriors. Could that be enough for Glenwood to come out on top? They still pick Norwalk, 27-24. Valley at Marshalltown. The Tigers have really struggled this season, no thanks to a string of injuries to key players. But Marshalltown shouldn't pose a challenge for a team that could still make the playoffs with a win. They pick Valley, 49-7. Excuse me. Pella at number um, uh, 8, Gilbert. Gilbert's first loss of the season came against Bondurant Farrar, and then one week later, Pella handled the uh, handed the Blue Jays a surprising defeat. As the Tigers struggled in the last two games, the Dutch uh, looked poised to add another win to their record, so picking Pella here, 31-21. to 21. Uh, Number 10, Humboldt. At number 9, Webster City. With uh, Lance Kuhn back from injury, this has the makings of a solid matchup between two of the state's top running backs, Kuhn and Webster City's Jackson Cherry. The advantage goes to the Lynx and Cherry, who is a two-way menace, even though Humboldt beat them uh, then number one Clear Lake last Friday. Webster City is chosen here 34-27. to Belle Plaine at number one, Min- Winfield Mount Union. There doesn't seem to be a world in which the Plainsman and the team that ruins the uh, Wolves' perfect season. No other program has been able to slow down Cam Buffington-led Winfield Mount Union, and Buffington seems to get better with each game. So Winfield Mount Union is chosen 74-14. Interstate 35 at number 8 PCM. The Mustangs are on a roll, and running back uh, Adrian Robbins has put together an impressive resume this season. That plus PCM's stout, stout defense should make this an easy first-round win for the Mustangs 
picking PCM, 42-13. North Lynn at number five, Lisbon. Lisbon has a perfect 8-0 record heading into the postseason, but don't count North Lynn out. The Lynx defense could make things interesting, and the offense could hold its own. Lisbon chosen 27-23. And finally, Eddieville, Blakesburg, Fremont at number six, Regina Catholic. Historically, Regina has won every matchup with Eddieville, Blakesburg, Fremont. That undefeated record should remain intact on Friday, choosing Regina 42-10. to 10. Thanks, Jim. Messinger Hardman voted the Register's Athletes of the Week from Joe Randleman of the Des Moines Register. Washington volleyball player Leighton Messinger and Pella football player Luke Hardman were voted the October 8-14 Register Female and Male Athletes of the Week sponsored by Iowa Ortho. Messinger won Female Athlete of the Week with 68% of the vote. Johnston girls cross-country runner Olivia Verde came in second with 30%. Messinger was a force at the net for the Washington volleyball team during its four-set victory over Columbus on October 12th, which was senior night at Washington. Messinger finished the night with 26 kills on an outstanding 53.3% efficiency for the Demons. She also had 16 digs, two aces, and one block. Hardman won Male Athlete of the Week with 61% of the vote. Ankeny Boys cross-country runner Ethan Zuber was second with 20%. Hardman had a big night throwing the ball to lead Pella to its 40-13 upset victory over number one Bondurant Farrar on Friday. Hardman completed 17 of 25 passes for 359 yards and three scores. He added 39 yards and two touchdowns on the ground. And thank you, Ben. Uh, uh, time to move to Dear Abby for this morning. Um, there are a couple letters to Dear Abby, so uh, uh, actually uh, three letters. Uh, we'll take turns on these. Dear Abby, my son married a wonderful woman. Sadly, they are having great difficulty conceiving a baby. They have opted out of many conventional medical procedures because of their religious beliefs, for which I admire them. While their struggles persist, another close family member has recently had a baby. My daughter-in-law has chosen not to see this family member or the baby because of the emotional pain of not being able to conceive herself. My son, who I know is torn, is supporting his wife. Our visits with them never include the new mom, dad, and baby. My son has met the baby twice on the down low without my uh, DIL. Our hearts are heavy. Our nuclear family has always been close, but this is putting a strain on the rest of us. Although we empathize with my daughter-in-law's emotional pain, what advice can you offer for this situation? Uh, signed Saddened in the East. And Abby writes, Dear Saddened, your daughter-in-law's circle of friends, not to mention family, is going to shrink to nothing if she persists in hiding from anyone who has reproduced. Unless her religious beliefs discourage psychological counseling, she should absolutely reach out for some 
And your son, who is already seeing the new baby on the down low, should insist upon it. Dear Abby, I have always had a great relationship with my in-laws. My father-in-law, Jerry, is a contractor who has generously helped us with renovations and other work around our condo. We moved to a house last year and expressed interest in a new bathroom floor. We bought all the materials and removed the old floor so he could install the new one. When Jerry offered to buy us a new vanity, we thanked him and accepted. After ordering it, he now wants us to put some money toward the sink and faucet. We also owe him for airfare to and out of state wedding. My husband Eddie is mad and doesn't want to give his dad anything because he says Jerry can afford it, while some months are more difficult for us. I don't know if I can morally live with not giving my father-in-law what we owe him. Signed indebted in New Jersey. Dear indebted. And the difference between you and Eddie is this. You have character, while your husband is ungrateful and entitled. Your father-in-law should be paid what is owed to him. Warn Eddie that if he doesn't cough up the money or installments, if necessary, his father's generosity is likely to contract, and with good reason. Your husband should be ashamed of himself. Thanks, Ben. Uh, Dear Abby, our next-door neighbor, Fred, retrieves his newspaper nude every morning about 4.30. We realized it after installing a ring doorbell. Our video captures a very graphic image daily. Should we tell him? Signed, X-Rated in the USA. Dear X-Rated, if your neighbor doesn't realize he's on camera, he deserves to know he's overexposed. In this day and age, with the popularity of Ring, there are few secrets anymore. By all means, tell Fred, and when you do, offer to give him a print or a pair of shorts. <laughs> Thanks, Jim, and that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Ben Stein, and my partner at the microphone, my good friend Jim Hoffman. Earlier, you heard Deanna Snyder and Judith Linden. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.